Once more, we are recording. My name is Paul Chapman, sometimes known as the Almighty Gooberzilla. And my co-host tonight... Dave. Joel. From Fast Karate for the Gentleman. Best podcast on the internet. Best podcast in the Western Hemisphere. In the world. And this is The, the greatest, greatest Movie Ever Podcast. This should be up in time for Thanksgiving, and we are thankful for the Cage Rage, Year of the Cage theme coming to an end eventually with this double feature. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Are we really thankful for that, Paul? I'm thankful for half of this Cage Rage. <laughs> Some people, I'm sure, are going to be thankful that the Cage Rage will be drawing to a close in December. He was saying, are we grateful that it's ending? No. Cage rage all the time, every time. I wish the cage raged in more films. I don't know if I could handle all the cageness. There's only so much I can take before my cells are suffused with cage. It's like radiation. You get a little dose every once in a while, you're fine. But if you get hit with it all at once, man, I read this chart on Wikipedia. <laughs> you don't want to know. <laughs> So, movies we're going to be talking about tonight in this order is from 1996, directed by the execrable Michael Bay. It's a film that is known as... The Rock. Isn't it called Dwayne Johnson now? Man, I was going to try and riff off your joke, but you already made the joke I would have made. <laughs> is that his name? Yeah, Dwayne Johnson. It doesn't matter what his name is. Okay, I'm sorry. Oh, snap. See, Paul's actually watched wrestling. I had to bring it back. I was hoping that you were just going to make a race to Witch Mountain reference. Yeah. Is that the next, the year of the rock? You could like do a weird sort of segue. Dwayne Johnson, master thespian theme. That's the definite possibility. You end with the movie, the rock, and then you start doing movies with the actor, the rock. You could stretch it out. I mean, he hasn't really been in enough movies, but I mean, you'd have to do like a three part podcast on the Scorpion King. Scorpion King, Mummy King 2. I guess it's just the mummy. Tooth Fairy, that one where he was a football player with a daughter. Oh, he's got a new one coming out. It's called Quick Justice, Fast Justice. Faster. Oh, yeah, Faster. And it says the tagline is, Slow Justice is no justice at all. (laughs) (laughs) Let's say with the other movie that we're going to do as well tonight from 1997, directed by Simon West, not Michael Bay, although I was confused about that. And it is a movie that is known as Con Air. So let's talk about The Rock. I will try not to spend this podcast focusing on how much I hate what Michael Bay does. I think if you're going to pick a Michael Bay movie to actually watch and enjoy, this is the only one that would be in the running. It's true. The thing is, I was watching this movie, and the only parts of it that I genuinely enjoyed are the ones that you occasionally reference on your own podcast. The Rocketman bit, Sean Connery's motivational speech, and a few of the other scenes. But most of the movie was just making me grind my teeth in irritation because it was so annoying to me to just be bombarded with these stupid situations and these shallow characters. Really overdramatic music with strange shots. Sassy black man, sassy homosexual. (laughs) Is it possible for Michael Bay to write any character, white, black, Latino, Asian, or otherwise, that is not some sort of goofy stereotype? Because in The Rock, Nicolas Cage, he listens to the Beatles only on vinyl because it sounds better than CDs. You know, he's afraid to commit to his girlfriend. You got the white people who are all like super nerds and like uptight, like Nicolas Cage and the FBI guys who are like, wow, what are you doing? Don't let Sean Connery get away. And they still have like more character development than any other race or 
sexual preference in a Michael Bay film ever. Because, <laughs> like, there's always, like, the black guy that's in the Michael Bay film who's there to go, like, oh, damn. When that trolley operator showed up, I was, like, face palming. I was like, don't do this to me, Michael Bay. That's the closest one of those characters has ever been to being funny. I wish I could, like, conjure up a mathematical theorem for it. It's kind of like Zeno's paradox, if I may. Though you may get closer to being funny, you will never actually get to the point of being funny. So, like, I think we can all agree that that trolley car driver is not funny and, like, borderline offensive. But is he more offensive than Anthony Anderson in Transformers the movie? Or just Anthony Anderson ever. (laughs) Definitely less offensive than Anthony Anderson stealing all the donuts to prove his innocence. (laughs) I'm watching this film and what was so frustrating to me was I know Michael Bay is smarter than this. He has to be to make films that make the money that his films do. I mean, the films themselves are so dumb, yet they rake in that cash. And so there has to be this calculatedness to his making these films that leads me to believe that he's a better filmmaker than the movies that he makes would lead you to believe. It's like what they say about artists. You got to know all the rules before you can break them. Or just disregard them entirely. (laughs) Or that. Well, he's an artist at making money. It's a skill I aspire to. (laughs) (laughs) I signed up for his six-week book class. (laughs) He's able to get these actors that are better than the material that they find themselves in. Ed Harris is better than this. Sean Connery is much, much better than this. And Sean Connery is actually entertaining in this film. I'll, I'll give him that. Nicolas Cage, I don't know if he's better than this. I mean, The Wicker Man (laughs) mm, sort of makes me wander. Yeah, that list, it stops right there. I know we all liked adaptation, but whatever. The weatherman was garbage. So the story of The Rock is utter nonsense. You've got Ed Harris, who is a brigadier general. He is upset with doing decades of illegal missions in which his men are killed and then their families are not given any benefits and they're not given any proper burial. This doesn't wash for me. His motivation is weak. He's so upset with the mistreatment of his troops, his secret black ops troops on these illegal missions, that his solution to writing this grave injustice is to break into a chemical weapons storage point steal a whole bunch of weapons of mass destruction, the the deadly VX gas toxin that has magical properties in this film, then go to Alcatraz and take the city of San Francisco hostage, because Alcatraz is such a great point to defend against. It's the prison that nobody's broken out of, which means that you have to get super secret spy guy, Sean Connery, who actually did break out of Alcatraz to help you break back into Alcatraz so you can defuse all damn chemical weapons that are pointing at the people. Stop the terrorists that hate our lives and hate our freedoms. That's basically the story of The Rock. I just like, I was watching bits and pieces before we started recording just to make sure I was fresh as if I needed it. And I was just like, <laughs> I guess I'd never thought about this before, but it just like seems so unlikely to me that a general would be involved in this or even like not have the abstract idea of his men enough that he would actually care about individual people. He was the hands-on military guy in the rice paddies with his people, I don't know, slitting people's throats with coffee can lids. But see, here's the thing. His whole beef is that the dead soldiers didn't get any recognition. Their families didn't get any benefits. But all of the stuff that they were talking about were missions that were illegal, that were outside the charter of the United States Armed Forces. They were apparently going and toppling dynasties and invading China and and doing all of this stuff. And it is a soldier's duty to refuse an illegal order that he and all of his men went along with these missions sort of indicate their complicity in the idea that, you know, if the government's going to cut 
their losses and deny knowledge of a black ops operation, that's something that they have to be prepared for. I imagine that the government actually compensates people in that position fairly well. I never really bought the angle that, you know, these men died in foreign lands unrecognized by their government and that their families were just left out to hang. I don't think that's how it works. Yeah, if you're doing like super illegal things, like they're probably paying you the cheddar. Because otherwise, like, why would you do it? Or why wouldn't you spill the beans about it? Sense of patriotism, apparently. And that's the other thing that, that bothers me about Michael Bay's portrayal of soldiers in his movies. They're not soldiers. They're not human beings. They're chest-thumpingly macho stereotypes of patriotism that do dumb shit that gets them and their men killed. A really great example of that is when Ed Harris and Michael Bain are having that pissing contest on Alcatraz when they break in with the SEAL team. And of course, the bad guys have caught them trying to break in and they've got them all covered from a superior position with their machine guns. They're like, don't fight us, we'll kill you all. He's like, I cannot give that order. I'm like, oh my God, yeah. You, you totally could. No one would blame you. Oh, He's like, man. don't worry, guys. I'm going to travel back in time and kill Ed Harris's mom. <laughs> I played that exact level in Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2, and I discovered the trick is just to ignore all the guys and run to the next checkpoint so they stop spawning. So if the SEAL team had figured that out, I think they would have all been alive. Really, what's the option, though? I mean, if you are a Navy SEAL team who's infiltrated this base to stop people from nuking San Francisco, maybe you don't really want to be taken hostage by these guys. Yeah, you're like, 80,000 people, I've got to save them. This is what your duty is. You surrender, and then when the opportunity presents itself, you attempt to break free from your captors and complete your mission. You don't get everybody killed, which guarantees that you can't complete your mission. That's what you do. Except in Michael Bay world, where every soldier is just a basically a penis with an M16. <laughs> Except in my world, where every military mission is preceded by a pump-up session that is ended with John Bon Jovi's I'm going down in a blaze of glory. <laughs> <laughs> I was watching this movie, and I was getting pissed off looking at that one Latino soldier on the bad guy squad who had that top knot. I kept wanting to oh reach into God, the film yeah. and cut that top knot off. I was like, son of a bitch. That guy has that haircut in like every movie though. That's not the only movie he's been in with that haircut. He didn't have that haircut in Transformers. I think it's because he may be Latino or maybe he's one of those pseudo Samoans that always plays a Latino. Why did they just have a guy that was like a sumo wrestler with the Sean Maj going on? <laughs> I think it's called a dogie. The dogie? Yeah, he's wandering around a dogie and a combat vest with, like, bandoliers of ammo hanging off of him, but still no pants. Wearing the sash, yeah. Big old samurai diaper. <laughs> it's where he keeps his extra magazines. That happening in a Michael Bay film would be entirely plausible to me. It's no less ridiculous than Sergeant Candyman and white guy whose name I don't remember, but I call Foaming Rabid McKillenstein. Well, which one? He's a dude that has the axe who's chasing Godspeed at the end. Yeah, the two guys that rebel against General Ed Harris when they realize he just doesn't have the fortitude to nuke a civilian population with deadly nerve gas. But they really, really wanted to kill themselves, some civilians, with those rockets, so they, they have to go through with the plan. Well, they really wanted the money. <laughs> Keep your promises. What did your mama teach you? Never change horses in midstream. Exactly. We can't start a different negotiating tactic. We've already come this far based on deadly poisonous gas in the center of San Francisco. How did those guys not get kicked out of the military on a Section 8 after like a week and a half? I mean, their bloodlust is so tangible. You could cut it and serve it on bagels. 
Well, you're being used for illegal missions. I don't know if this is like a real trope in the military, but it's definitely a real trope in military fiction that you have the special ops agents go insane or at least sort of go reasonably insane. Candyman's old enough. He probably saw some shit in Nam. But you're the military recruiter guy, okay? They come in there and you ought to have a little checklist on your box of questions that you ask them before recruiting them to the military. One of them is, are you a homosexual? Right underneath that question should be, are you the candy man? <laughs> Because we could really use one of those. Just imagine. Yeah, if the Candyman showed at the recruiting center, they would hire him in a second. They'd be like, oh, you have to take out these Iraqi insurgents, and he just transforms into a swarm of bees, captures Osama bin Laden. The urban ghost mythology, don't ask, don't tell policy, it's actually hindering our troop recruitment. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, I could really help you guys, but I can't reveal that if you say my name three times in a mirror, I'll appear. Otherwise, you guys will drum me out. <laughs> I thought President Obama was going to repeal this. That's the one drawback of the Candyman. There's an extensive psyops campaign that precedes him, which gets Al-Qaeda operatives to want to one-up each other by saying the Candyman into a mirror three times. I don't think they have any mirrors in Al-Qaeda caves, though. Just imagine if you were like a prisoner of war and they put you in a room with a mirror. You'd be like, oh, you dumb f***ed up now. <laughs> uh, but he's just as likely to kill you as the rest of the other people, the bad guys. Yeah, you were dead anyway. So... Nicholas Cage is the chemical weapons engineer with a pregnant Catholic girlfriend, because they don't practice birth control, but they do practice premarital sex. Hmm. As all good Catholics. Yeah, that's just that pick and choose. So he's got a stake in the fight, and Sean Connery is the guy who's been held without the writ of habeas corpus for three decades because he was a British operative that found all of our super secret secrets from spying on J. Edgar Hoover back in the day. He just wants to get out of prison and have happy life with his daughter, who he conceived after a prison break in a Led Zeppelin conference. Good combination there. They've got to break into The Rock. Their whole team gets killed almost instantly when Michael Bain is being an idiot, and they've got to disable the rest of the bad guys and The Rockets and prevent San Francisco Bay, Oakland, and other neighboring areas from getting hit with chemical weapons. Nobody cares about Oakland. They were trying to redirect the rockets at Oakland before they realized they had to disable them. There was a Raiders game going on. They threw like a laser targeting device over there. They were like, yeah, shoot the rockets. <laughs> I did look up VX Gas after the movie was over, watching it on Netflix Instant Streaming, and I was surprised to learn that it was in fact a real chemical weapon that was in fact discovered by accident. I was not surprised to learn that it does not in fact melt your face off or cause your muscles to constrict so terribly that they snap your spine. Those were cinema fiction. Oh man, I feel lied to. Basically, it, like most nerve agents, kills you because it paralyzes your diaphragm and you die a terrible death of not being able to breathe. But that's not dramatic enough, so you gotta... Yeah, you gotta get the face blisters. Now, to be fair, they probably weren't talking about an entire ball of the stuff uppercutted into your... Oh, God. ...mouth. That's how I want to go, but that is also how I do not want to go. Apparently, Nicolas Cage does not know where his heart is located either when you're injecting atropine directly into it, unless he's got a very long and very curved needle. He, like, stabs it right into the middle of his chest? It's more in his stomach area. And he leaves it hanging out there when he's doing the green flares of freedom. He's like, oh, man, you know, it's all blood in there. It'll get there eventually. Going back to the stupid racial stereotypes in terms of white people, 
okay, you're an FBI agent, you're an expert in chemical weapons, you've gone through the training at Langley and everything like that. When you get the suspicious box from Sarajevo at the beginning of the movie that people have moved into the shelter with the water sprays and the big fan to suck all the air out of there and everything like that, and you're opening up the suspicious box from Bosnia-Herzegovina or wherever the hell it came from, do you pick up the baby doll and start playing with it? Well, that guy was a trainee, so he didn't know. He was like, hey, look at this baby, baby trap. It's like, we're pretty suspicious this is a bomb, but that's a pretty cute baby doll. I think I'm going to dress it up. Hey, baby doll, you like this dress? I'm going to take you home for my unborn daughter. That guy deserved to die. I'm sorry. He shouldn't have lived through that. That should have been Nicolas Cage's motivation to never let let another man die under his watch because of his negligence of telling him not to pick up the baby doll and do a puppet show with it. I did notice something, though, a reoccurring theme in The Rock that actually reasserts itself with greater strength in the movie Con Air, and that is Nicolas Cage is immune to explosions. Everybody in a Michael Bay movie is immune to explosions. But Nicolas Cage is like especially immune to explosions because you can hit him with a super hyper thermite that you created just for the purpose of atomizing everything on this island, and it'll just gently knock him into the uh, water where he won't drown. Nobody seems to get in these movies that getting hit by the shockwave from the explosion isn't that much better. The fire really isn't what kills you. It's what the concussive force of that does to your brain. Yeah, the, my insides are now scrambled, but I'm feeling I can walk it off. Don't worry, I rolled with it. I rolled. When the wave hit me, I rolled, so I'm fine. Michael Bay's sense of physics is not that great, as indicated in the scene where Sean Connery, after carefully making like a little... What the heck was that? It was like a string that he pulled out of some part of the shower while singing along to hippie music. You see him in hotels. It's the thing that you hang your clothes up on as if anybody does that in a hotel. Oh, so it's like a line that you're supposed to pull out and then attach to something that gives you something to hold your clothes on? I've never seen that anywhere. You may have seen it in Final Destination. One of the kids got strangled by it in the shower. Oh, that's what that was. <laughs> okay. That makes a little more sense, but it doesn't make any sense that you could wrap that around someone's wrist and then throw them off a building where they fall 20 feet and then do not immediately have their arm torn out of their socket. Or your arm. I guess Sean Connery's pretty buff, so his shoulder might just get dislocated. I guess the thing that, that pissed me off the most, though, in terms of ridiculousness in this film was not the trolley chase in the Humvee through the middle of downtown San Francisco, but rather the Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom minecart chase under the secret tunnels under Alcatraz. What were they mining for under there? Mithril? Yeah, dude. <laughs> Prison labor. They got to make them do something. They printed all the license plates they needed. I think they dug too greedily and too deep. Yeah, they let the San Francisco Bay in. I didn't really understand that either. Like, what? There's like giant pits in this cavern system. Rumor has it we'll find seawater at the bottom of this hole. Really? I like those odds. The world's most precious resource. The parts of the rock that I actually enjoyed were the parts that you occasionally just for no tangible reason reference on your podcast and for that i salute you gentlemen it made watching this movie bearable dude that's not the podcast that's just every day you gotta give me like a minute and a half at the end of this podcast where i can just say all these things that are bubbling up while we're talking
I'm holding back as best I can. You could do that now if you want, because I'm about ready to segue to Con Air. Oh, man. But I hate Con Air, and I sort of like The Rock. Really? I like The Rock a lot more than Con Air. I'm not going to lie. I find that surprising. I think every freedom-loving American would. The Rock was like a more innocent time, and also Nicolas Cage doesn't have a mullet and a crappy accent. Yeah. But it's the mullet and the crappy accent that make the Nicolas Cage performance in Con Air as cagey as it is. Have you seen the You're the Man Now dog thing with Nicolas Cage has fabulous hair that actually uses music that is from Con Air? I didn't realize that was part of the score. (laughs) (laughs) Let me see if I can find that. Talk amongst yourself. I've got a mission from God to find this particular thing. Basically, my problem with Con Air is that Nicolas Cage looks like he slipped through the time portal in Time Cop after the people from the 1860s got done stealing the gold. <laughs> Nobody in the South has that accent. Like, he sounds like the motherfucker in, uh, in True Blood that's a vampire from 1840. <laughs> Okay, I found what I was looking for, and I'm pasting it at a link that I will include in the show notes. Can you see that, guys? Let me give a little click over here. It's just Nicolas Cage has great hair, dog. You're the man now, dog. <laughs> Do you approve, Dave? Yeah, that's pretty awesome. <laughs> that is Con Air, in a nutshell. How did you forget this was part of the score? Because... That part of the score is when he's going through the plane just wrecking people, just punching convicts in the face and taking bullets without even being bothered by it very much. And then the plane crashes. The plane crashes like 40 times. How do they keep getting it in the air? And it never seems to bother him. Con Air is a story of a true American patriot. Nicholas Cage is an army ranger. He gets furloughed from the army. He gets to go home and see his wife, who's slightly pregnant with his daughter. And then he encounters, and this is why I thought it was a Michael Bay film originally, Rapey McRapenstein and his two would-be rapist friends in a bar that are harassing them for no reason when he's clearly slow dancing with his honey. So he gets attacked by three rednecks and he kills one of them in self-defense and they run off with the switchblade that the guy pulled on him. Granted, I still think he'd be able to stand on self-defense and get off of this charge, but he makes the mistake of copping to a plea instead of being a stand-up guy and fighting it to the bitter end and the judge throws the book at him. Well, I love the judge's excuse. He's like, you are a highly trained military machine. Fists are a lethal weapon. (laughs) You are so much of a weapon that laws don't apply to you in the same way that they apply to everybody else. Yeah, he didn't understand the rules of engagement with all that military training. That's like, uh, in some part, true. If you're a boxer or a martial artist, I think you are held to a higher standard improving self-defense. I guess that's true, but at the same time, like the higher standard isn't just that you are never allowed to use your skills to defend your wife from physical harm. Didn't you see the scene where one of the rednecks picked up the knife so there was no evidence that it, they attacked him with a weapon? Well, there's still broken beer bottles that the other rednecks dropped right there at the scene of the crime. You know what? In my defense, I would say, Your Honor, three guys tried to mug me and I killed one of them. Is it my fault they're total pussies? I don't <laughs> think so. And then you flip your mullet and walk straight out of court. And then it goes, That's just the end of the movie. Yeah, that could have been his defense, too. He should have just showed him that scene from the movie. It's like, Your Honor, can you convict somebody who is this much party in the back? I don't think so. <laughs> 
Because in prison, party in the back means something totally different. <laughs> oh, God. You know, I don't think his hair is technically a mullet. I think that's just really long hair. Because I think to be a mullet, you have to have, like, sort of, you know, a rise at the top and shaved sides. It's true. Maybe it just sort of affects a mullet because Nicolas Cage's hair is so thin. You don't see any of it billow on top that would, you know, suggest there's any length in the back. He's pulling a Michael Bolton. He tried so hard not to go bald. Yeah. Poor guy. How much do we want to bet that his entire movie career has been based on funding his Rogaine habit? He's like, if I just get more. The hair keeps falling out that they're transplanting. He's like, I don't care. Take it from my balls. Just stick it in the top of my head. I thought his hairpiece in Con Air was less egregious than his hairpiece in The Rock. And the reason I say that is in The Rock, he's trying to fake like a sensible short haircut, but he's like super bald at this point and it really doesn't work. Whereas in this one, that hairpiece is so hypnotic. I'm willing to go with it. Well, when he walks off the bus, he's like taunting you. He's like, believe it. It's like a Chris Angel magic trick or something. You can't, you know, it's BS, but you're compelled. Let's get back to the plot, though. The whole thing is that he serves eight years in penitentiary, making friends with the guy who's delivering the books. A diabetic. He's like, hey, you look like you're a diabetic. Yes, I am. Okay. He's bettering himself as a human being, learning Spanish and origami so he can make folding cranes for his beautiful daughter. And he's just looking forward to that day when he can reunite with his wife and his kid. This doesn't make any sense to me. I'm fairly certain you can be discharged from any penitentiary. Any penitentiary where you're staying can eventually release you back into the world. They give you like $35 for a bus ticket and say, good luck. Yeah, you just walk away. When they go through the whole process of letting you go. I don't think they have to transport you back to the jail that they were holding you at originally in order to release you to freedom. So that doesn't make a great deal of sense. Yeah, but it's probably convenient. It's a good way to get you on a special Jailbird Express flight filled with psychopaths, rapists, murderers, arsonists, and... Dave Chappelle. I just don't think there's any way that somebody being released from prison would be put on the same transport as people who were still in prison, let alone like the worst people who were still in prison. Yeah, because it's not like anybody who was in that group was convicted of manslaughter. They were all like just straight up murderers. It's like there's the guy in there for like, I don't even know. Can you get, you'd probably throw in jail for tax evasion. He's like, I think I'm on the wrong flight. I think Steve Buscemi was in there for tax evasion and everything else was just a lie that he spread about himself inside to make people scared of him. Otherwise they knew they were going to mess him up. And he was able to eyeball people into submission just because he's Steve Buscemi. He also convinced the prison guards to deliver him to the plane in, uh, you know, the Hannibal Lecter outfit. So he also convinced the justice system that all those things were true. Maybe he was like convicted of fraud and he's just that convincing. But yeah, there's a lot of people that have fun with their roles. You got Ving Rhames, you got John Malkovich stealing the show as Cyrus the Virus. You got Nick Chinland as Billy Bedlam, who I thought was a little underused because he didn't put the bunny back in the box. Well, that was his crucial and final mistake. Why couldn't he put the bunny back in the box? We may never know. Possibly his mother didn't love him enough. He might have had a really good reason, but he was just never given the opportunity to say it. Anyway, the cons take over the prison transport plane and hilarity ensues. The first time I watched this movie, I don't know how I missed this, but I was convinced that John Cusick tied the uh, really sexy sports car to the back of the plane to prevent the plane from taking off. I didn't realize that that was actually an accident. I thought that he had deliberately done that, and I guess I just missed that. Just to screw with Chief O'Brien? Well, no, I thought that he was actually thinking that it would accomplish something, but I was wrong. I think it's easier to think that John Cusack is just a total d- 
Mike. And he's like, I hate you, Chief <laughs> O'Brien. I mean, if you really want to hate somebody, give them that footwear. You know immediately that they're a detestable human being. But you come to love John Cusack. He saves the day. He's like, I believe you, Nicolas Cage. I believe we have a man on this plane after Nicolas Cage throws the dead Dave Chappelle out of the plane. Wait, there's something written on this body. St- this body that fell 5,000 feet. Talk about unbelievable. That was an amazingly well-maintained body for having fallen as far as it did. <laughs> I'll say this, though. The physics of that were pretty good because the destruction that that body wreaked upon that car was actually pretty realistic. That's another thing we haven't mentioned in the Jerry Bruckheimer Parthenon is sassy old people being sassy at the stoplight waiting to go. Oh no, a pigeon took a poop on our car after I just got it washed. Well, how are you going to feel when a Dave Chappelle falls on your car? That's what they call dramatic irony. Oh, the only thing that would have made that better is like if somebody screamed out, Did anybody see that bird? I think it would have been better if he had just made some grumbling about how he had 26 car payments left upon this particular car that he got from working on the set of Twin Peaks. Because that's who that actor is. He's the general guy from Twin Peaks. Oh, really? I never would have recognized him. He's always playing the same kind of guy. I wasn't expecting to, but I was finding myself enjoying this film in certain places, but also terribly frustrated with others. I was enjoying the movie up until the motorcycle chase at the end the entirely unnecessary motorcycle and fire truck chase yeah here's another 15 minutes of movie when it really could have just been over the plane just crashed into the las vegas strip what is going to be more exciting than that all i can say is that thank god that automated head crushing device was present where it was or else we might still have to contend with cyrus the virus <laughs> otherwise there might have been another chase something possibly even more exciting than a fire engine chase what were they even making in that plant like in the middle of las vegas there's some place where they stamp out things in tin like i don't what was that machine in like a one by one foot square <laughs> no less at least in the rock there's so much other stupid stuff going on that when you see the Galaxy Quest death machine with the chomping teeth, gears, and the flames shooting at strange intervals, you don't bother to stop and say, wait, what the hell is that machine doing? Smelting mithril from the mine? Paul, can I just point out that you tried to explain something in The Rock with a reference to Galaxy Quest. There is no way more people saw Galaxy Quest than The Rock. Galaxy Quest is a better film, but I love Come it. Come on. Everybody loves Tim Allen. <laughs> the best thing about Galaxy Quest was when Tim Allen leans over and screams into the communicator, It's a rock! It doesn't have any weak spots. Neither does Nicolas Cage. I will admit that a fire truck has various interesting things that you can use in a melee when hanging off the back of the fire ladder. Like a hose. (laughs) Axe. And that spear-looking thing, you know, that they use for, like, picking apart buildings. The hooks for, like, breaking open windows. The chase itself was just so boring. I mean, yeah, you'd just seen this cargo liner filled with cons crash onto the Las Vegas Strip. Again, they should have shot it down over the Grand Canyon in retrospect. Chief O'Brien was right. No, the majestic beauty of the canyon will be spoiled in this very isolated point at the bottom you can pick up the wreckage and fill in the crater with cement if you have to (laughs) our policy is you know let one innocent man or let 10 innocent guilty men (laughs) what the hell let a hundred guilty men go free to save one innocent man but it's like come on nicholas cage come on how many innocent men are we going to lose when you crash the plane into the Vegas Strip? What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. There were nobody innocent there. Think of all the, like, the wives who got like letters. It's like, your husband died in Vegas. I thought he was in Akron, Ohio for a business conference. 
Yeah, he and his room full of hookers were crushed by the fuselage of a crashing convict plane. Yeah, talk about being outed. Here's the other thing that I thought was funny about Con Air once we got to the conclusion of the film, where the Wikipedia attempts to justify the moral ambiguity of the ending of the film by saying that they think... I don't know who wrote this on the Wikipedia page, but it's totally citation needed. But they said that you see Steve Buscemi's character at the end of the film. What was his name? Garland Green. Garland Green, that's it. Steve Buscemi's character, shooting craps and drinking, he said margaritas, but I think it was actually Mai Tais. Apparently, he's given up his life of a serial killer. I don't think that that's the case at all in the ending of this film. I don't think people give up their lives as serial killers. Let's just put that right. Like, that's not something you stop doing. Yeah, he says, I'm feeling lucky. That just means he got out of jail for free and is probably going to murder many, many more innocent people. What, you think he's, like, not a serial killer anymore because he didn't kill that one girl who lived in the worst living situation anyone since, like, I don't know, the Indians who were given smallpox blankets? (laughs) I know why he didn't kill that girl. I realized it watching the film this time around. It's the fact that she snickered when she saw that gigantic explosion. He saw within her something of himself, and he knew that she was going to grow up to be a total pyro. Are you sure it wasn't just because her living in a trailer park with an empty pool to use as a playground wasn't a much worse fate (laughs) than being raped and murdered? Yeah. I mean, what could he do worse than fate has already done? It's like, like, listen, girl, you got a tea party. Your doll doesn't have a head. Maybe. I don't remember. But let's, for the sake of argument, let's say it doesn't. Your playground is an empty swimming pool. Your life expectancy is pretty low as is. Let's let me savor these miserable years you have coming yeah i'm a sadist so i'm just gonna set up this webcam here and watch you grow up and i'll never have to kill anybody again (laughs) yeah this is like some sort of like weird rehabilitation program for him he's like one girl suffers but the rest live do you think that they would have been onto the cage a lot sooner given their natural paranoia as inmates. I mean, he seems to skate along a little too easily from situations where I think that they would just be putting a bullet in his head just to be on the safe side. About the midpoint in the movie when they're like going to switch over at the city and they're like, all right, we're going to make one stop. We've taken over this airplane. We just got to get through this and then it's on to Mexico. And they're like, we're going to need five people to get off of this plane. He and his friend volunteer because, you know, his buddy, all his insulin got broken in the struggle. So he gonna die do you die that quickly from diabetes though i thought you slip into a coma first you definitely do not you can die rather quickly but you, it's not like it's going to transpire over the course of a four-hour flight. Like, you can do serious damage, but you'll probably be able to be resuscitated at a hospital. Well, if the bullets can't stop you, maybe the diabetes can. It's immediately suspicious that they volunteer to get off the plane in the first place. Because, like, who's going to take that deal? Why wouldn't you take that deal? If you weren't involved in the conspiracy from the beginning, and these guys aren't interested in killing everyone on board, why wouldn't they just let you off? Because you could rat them out. How so? By saying, oh, by the way, those people on the plane, after you're in custody, you're going back to jail if you're getting off the plane. That's why they took the steps to gag them and bag them so that they couldn't spill their guts. Yeah, I guess. But I'm like, the F- like the FAA is not going to, well, I don't know how closely they're tracking this flight since apparently the only people keeping an eye on it are Chief O'Brien and John Cusack from the back of a sports car. You don't think the FAA is going to notice that like a plane that's bound for somewhere in California all of a sudden made a hard turn left over Texas? 
when they're at that airport, they make a big show of dropping off the transponder. Yeah, and Hillbilly Bob's Grand Canyon sightseeing tours plane. The tracking device is not on the plane anymore. Here's the thing, though. Multiple redundancies. If I was in charge of that plane and the flights that it was taking, it would have at least three tracking devices, two of them hidden. Yeah, like you would not publicize knowledge of some of that shit. We've got radios, we've got explosives. How far away can the running man exploding collar truly be? There's a lot of stuff about it that doesn't make a great deal of sense if you think about it. What was with that airplane graveyard? Those places actually exist. Yeah, I know, but do you put it right next to... I guess it would make sense to put it right next to the the landing strip if the plane breaks. Well, I mean, yeah, just wheel it off. I wouldn't want to fly into a place that was surrounded... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> by the skeletons of wrecked planes. It's kind of like finally like, the, the ship graveyard in the sea. You know you're in the wrong spot. Like, wait a second. Surrounded by the Sargasso, the Bermuda Triangle up in this piece, with the one old guy, like, living under the pickup truck. <laughs> He's like, don't tell nobody, I gotta pee. And are we sure this movie wasn't directed by Michael Bay? Because that sounds like it was. This one will fool you. I, I thought it was directed by Michael Bay, but in fact, it is Simon West, some British guy that did the Tomb Raider movie. He believed so much in the Tomb Raider movie that he also wrote the story that the screenplay was based off of. So, good on him, I guess. Really? Yes, Simon West. He's a multi-talented guy. Actor, producer, director breakdancer well if his only credits are con air and the story for the tomb raider movie well no he directed tomb raider as well that doesn't mean multi-talented if it turned out that simon west was actually Nicolas cage and was directing con air in addition to starring in it <laughs> then you might have something that's why Nicolas cage keeps getting work he's got this vast conspiracy of aliases well, he does have his own production company, Saturn Pictures. I just looked him up. He directed episodes of the ill-fated TV show Keen Eddie. As if we weren't suspicious enough, I feel like we by now we should know better. We should have learned. I saw he's directing some movie called The Mechanic. I thought that said The Machinist. Yeah, so did I. I was like, oh, maybe he turned a different leaf or something. But still, this movie's got a surprising amount of star power, if you think about it. I mean, it's even got Danny Trejo in it. Yeah, but Danny Trejo will be in anything. I'm pretty sure you pay him in orange soda. I'm pretty sure when you're referencing Danny Trejo, you're supposed to just say that Mexican guy. You know that dude? That dude that was in Machete. Oh, what's his name? You know, the one with the woman with sombrero on his Edward chest? Edward James Almos? No, the other one. Oh. No, yeah. Well, you start out and you go, that Mexican guy, they say, I don't know who you're talking about. And then you go, you know, the guy with the, like, really like scarred face and you go Edward James almost and no no <laughs> he's got the long hair you gotta start describing him in his improbable film roles you know that guy who got eaten by the snake in the opening reel of Anaconda oh yeah you know that guy who got blown up by an exploding wine bottle by Charles Bronson and Death Wish for the crackdown what's his face uh, he gets shot by the drug dealers and um, oh what's that movie called oh yeah Desperado and then you have to explain to him what Desperado is. Uh, if you've gone on that long, that's a sign that you've been brainwashed and put in an alternate dimension or something. It's like the Twilight Zone episode with the pig people. They're like, who's Danny Trejo? And you're like, no. And then it just ends. So do we have any final thoughts on Con Air? Quite possibly the greatest movie ever with Nicolas Cage really rocking that hair. It's funny to see Dave Chappelle before he's like, Dave Chappelle. I don't know. He's still Dave Chappelle. I feel like that's probably not a persona for him. That's just who he is. And like, that's how he acts in every movie and TV show. When I saw this, I maybe had like a sort of 
brief idea, like maybe I'd heard Kill Them Softly or something like that. But when I came back to watch this movie, I'd actually forgotten pretty much everybody that was in it. Like, I didn't remember Chief O'Brien was in it. I didn't remember John Cusack was in it. I basically remember John Malkovich, Nicolas Cage, and Steve Buscemi. And I was like, everybody is some sort of weird, like, this guy is like the rapist, and this guy's the murderer guy. <laughs> and, like, they all had their, like, specific criminal niche. I don't know. I don't really like this movie. I cannot in good faith say that I like The Rock, but I certainly like it more on, like, the sliding scale than I do Con Air. Well, at least it didn't have anybody with obnoxious top knots that I wanted to cut off in it. That is true. I do have a final thought when it comes to Con Air. It has to do with the showdown between Nick Cage and John Malkovich at the end of the movie. He's got Nicolas Cage dead to rights on the plane before it crashes and, like, the propeller cuts through and separates them and stuff, where he says something along the lines of the last thing that his daughter will smell is his stinking breath. Why would you talk about your own breath in that context? I wouldn't brag about my halitosis, you know? You know what's worse than murder? Some bad breath. I'm not even going to take some mints before I blow in your daughter's face and I kill her. What do you think about that? That's rude. Maybe he was going to say something a lot worse, but they had to like tone it down. Some other stinky part. They were like, whoa, John Malkovich, we can't talk about child rape. <laughs> Not even in an R-rated movie. Oh, and speaking of children, there was one thing that I thought was totally hilarious. If you can get past the many repetitions of the song, How Do I Live Without You, being blared in your ear, Trisha Underwood version of it in this film, watch the performance of his daughter when she finally gets to meet him for the first time. That kid deserves an Oscar. Because the abject horror and disgust that she <laughs> expresses <laughs> when meeting Nicolas Cage is so priceless. <laughs> What's up, blood and grease-covered daddy? And he gives her the bunny. And she's like, I don't want the bunny. I got this for you. It only fell in the sewer. <laughs> <laughs> and I fished it out with my bare hands. It has murder and redneck blood on it. <laughs> Even the sewer couldn't get that off. <laughs> You might be able to find some enjoyment from both of those films, but I have to say that watching them back-to-back -back in preparation for this recording was a trial. It was an ordeal of Herculean proportions. This is just like what I was saying at the beginning with the radiation. Is your hair coming out? Do you feel slightly nauseous? I think I'm bleeding from my gums. <laughs> you gotta know the signs, man. So bearing that in mind, this is Paul Chapman, sometimes known as the Almighty Gubrazilla, and my gracious guest hosts... Dave. Joel. And we're signing off and saying, before we have any naysayers out there talking about how much they hate it whenever I have Dave and Joel on my podcast, I will have to point to the fact that The Wicker Man, to this date, is still the number one downloaded podcast. I can't believe Conan the Barbarian didn't beat it. Nope. Wicker Man is over a thousand downloads more than any other podcast. Well, let's not take all the credit. Nicolas Cage was involved. <laughs> In the Conan the Barbarian podcast, we did fail to mention the score, which probably drove the downloads down significantly. Oh, I do vaguely remember that. I feel kind of guilty about that, because I remember when we were, like, growing up, Andrew would always be like, Oh, it's Basil Paul Doris! And I'd be like, whatever, Andrew. <laughs> Trying to watch about the riddle of steel here. Talking about Basil. But anyway, we're signing off and saying this is your opportunity to go hog wild with as many quotes from The Rock as you want, Dave. It's all you. Nice. I'm signing off and saying, I'm only borrowing your Humvee. <laughs> I take pleasure in gun, you boy. You know how this shit works? Losers want about their best. Winners go home and f*** the prom queen. It's you. You're the rocket man. Hey, man, you just f***ed up your Ferrari. <laughs>
<laughs> wasn't mine. Oh, I don't okay. know. I, that's that's I'm plenty. I'm trying to think if there's any more. Oh, <laughs> uh, it hurts to laugh. I'd like to issue a public apology to Paul for having to put a noise filter on this because I can see every time I move my head, the headset gets all creaky because I got a big old fat head. Can't wear headphones.